Welcome to Educated Conjecture, an Ipsos podcast that combines what the public thinks with what the experts think. In each episode, Ipsos's Mike College and Sean Simpson join an informed guest to examine a current or emerging issue. They discuss what is happening today, think ahead about the future impact, both the good and the bad, and reflect on what steps might need to be taken to generate a better outcome for tomorrow. In this episode, Daryl Bricker, Global CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, joins Sean and Mike as they talk about the 2021 Canadian federal election. Will the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan influence the early days of the campaign? And what should we look for in the coming weeks? And now, on to the episode. Hey, Sean, how are you today? I'm good, Mike. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm uh, I'm excited about our uh, our guest, although not as it, you know, sometimes we have people on that we're not used to talking to. Um, today, we get to have uh, Dr. Daryl Bricker on, our, uh, our our global head of public affairs. Um, so it's not someone that you and I are familiar with, but also uh, very timely uh, as we uh, start off the kickoff the first week of the election. I got to tell you, though, kind of weird interviewing your boss. <laughs> well, you know what? We can edit him out, uh, make him sound like whatever we want when all is said and done. <laughs> Sounds good. All the power. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, we uh, start off with our uh, our cool facts. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Yeah, sure. And I'll be very interested to hear Daryl's uh, reaction to this. I'm sure it'll come up at some point. But uh, our recent uh, polling for Global News uh, to kick off the election found that uh, a majority, 56% of Canadians, say that we should not be having an election during a pandemic. And in fact, I'm going to sprinkle a little of my own opinion in there. I don't think we should be having an election during my summer holidays. That's How's that for, uh, uh, for an extension? <laughs> That might have been uh, closer to 90% who yeah, agreed definitely. to ask the question that way. Excellent. I uh, I uh, won't trot out a bunch of numbers, but I, I just wanted to note that um, I went back and I looked, you know, we do our context work and monthly we look at citizen and consumer sentiment. And I went back and I looked at where citizen consumer sentiment was at the start of the 2019 campaign. Because I would have assumed, well, I did assume that um, we're coming out of the pandemic, we'd be lower. But in fact, we're, we're, we're higher than we were at the start of the 2019 campaign. We're more buoyant, we're more optimistic uh, across a number of, of errors, not, not across all, all of the indicators that we look at. Um, and, and I think what we're seeing is, uh, again, the effect of the pandemic, right? Um, our reference point in 2019 was where we wanted the world to go in the last 10 years and how we felt. Our reference point now is really short term. How have things got better since since the war about a year ago, and and in that view, we things are decidedly better. Uh, so it's a different dynamic for the campaign, even though um, we might feel that things are a little more skeptical. And to your point, there's a number of people saying, "I don't want election because we're still in in the pandemic and things aren't all all rosy." But in in real numbers, they're actually more upbeat than they were a couple years ago. I guess so we'll ask Daryl to shake it all out for us, huh? Well, uh, Daryl, uh, welcome to the podcast. Exciting, uh, what, five, six weeks ahead of us with the election campaign. Um, I thought we'd jump in. Uh, I told my mom that we were doing this, and her first question was, of course, who's going to win? Uh, so that's, no, we'll, we'll back up and uh, let's start with the start of the campaign. And I think by the end of the campaign, we'll have a better idea of who's going to win. Uh, we're out with our, our first wave for global news. Uh, really no change in the last month. Uh Liberals 36, Conservatives 31, NDP 20, the Bloc and the Green 6 and 5. We Not surprising necessarily because of the way the campaign started, but is 
is this a concern for any of the parties that no one's moving fast and who needs to move the quickest? Well, I think uh, it is a surprise because normally you expect that the starting of an election campaign, particularly even the rumoring of the starting of an election campaign, is going to ca cause the ice jam to break a little bit and people start getting in an election mindset and, and they start moving uh, um, in the direction that they'll likely, at least for the first part of the campaign, where they would vote if an election was held tomorrow, which is the question that we ask on the surveys. But this time around, it was like they threw a party put up all the marquees and the tents and everything on the weekend and nobody showed up. Uh, it had no effect on, uh, on uh, what uh, public opinion was. Uh, there was nothing that happened over the course of the weekend in spite of the explosions on Twitter and everything else that, uh, that usually happens among the people who watch these things far too closely didn't percolate out to the, to the public. So the, the, uh, uh, the views that people had prior to this for at least a month are the same that they hold today. And, the problem that that creates is that if the outcome that these data would uh, would uh, reflect in terms of uh, in terms of the actual election results, basically would give us a government that looks like what it is today. So, you ask me, you know, to whose advantage is all of this? Well, obviously, the problem is for the Liberal Party because they're they're they caused this election because they thought they could change what the government was going to be. They thought they were going to get a majority or they were in a position to get a majority. They still may, but there's nothing in the current numbers that suggests that they're uh, they're easily in with a majority. Our polling over the last couple of months, really, Daryl, or even the last number of years, have shown the the Liberals very steadily in the mid 30s, maybe oscillating up and down a, a couple of points. Um, are, are opinions of the Liberals and perhaps even more specifically Justin Trudeau baked in or do you think they still have room to increase substantially or, or decrease substantially? Well, campaigns do matter and there could be some things that that uh, that happened during the course of the campaign, and quite frankly, that happened in the course of the last campaign, as as we saw with, you know, the blackface incidents, and you know, uh, a, a prime minister or a potential prime minister who had decided he wanted to be an American citizen as well. I mean, there was a there was a bunch of events that happened that had an effect on what people thought of the political leaders. So um, Justin Trudeau is somebody that uh, they have uh, a pretty well, um, uh, I would say, developed sense of at this stage. So there's less of a risk that that could happen to him, but definitely a very large potential for that to happen to his number one challenger. And that would be Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the Conservative Party, who our, our polling show still has very, very high undecideds. How much of an issue, you know, we'll go back to 2015 and the, uh, uh, the Syrian crisis, the refugee crisis became sort of a flashpoint for the election. And the Liberals, uh, I think, capitalized by swooping in and saying, here's what we'll do. Um, Afghanistan in 2021, um, different but similar in terms of an international event rolling in into domestic coverage. Um, what's the impact early on of that? Well, Afghanistan is one of those wild cards that can happen in an election campaign, and you really don't know what the potential effect is going to be. Uh, some of it will come down to how the government manages it, I guess. But the problem that the Liberals have on, on this particular issue is this time they're not the opposition, they're the government. 
So last time around, they were the opposition, not the governments. And yeah. that puts you in a very different uh, uh, in a very different position as far as Canadians are concerned. And also your ability to actually affect what's happening in the moment. Uh, you're an opposition party. You really can't. If you're the government, people have expectations of performance around that. Uh, but the, the biggest issue that they have is that this is this is Afghanistan is one of those issues in which it is completely out of the control. Uh, the events that are happening on the ground in Afghanistan are completely out of control of this particular government. It's being hugely covered by the international media. So the Canadian media can't avoid it. It's going to lead the news because there's tons of big pictures uh, and uh, in film and all sorts of compelling information coming out of Afghanistan that uh, the, all, the, the best the government can do is respond to it. It's really not controlling it. So it is one of those wild cards that if the wrong thing happens, if the wrong thing is said, if the uh, something on the ground happens that... Uh, um, really points out uh, some uh, shortcoming in the way that uh, uh, the Canadian government is, uh, has been dealing with this issue or is trying to deal with this issue, it could be uh, uh, a pretty big, could have a pretty big effect on the campaign. Now, I, I would argue that the, the Qatar um, uh, situation in the last, uh, and that was the poor, unfortunate uh, uh, child, uh, Syrian child mm-hmm. who died on a shore um, uh, in, in uh, the Mediterranean, escaping from Syria, uh, the the myth of the campaign is it had a huge effect on the actual outcome. It really didn't. Um, uh, in fact, when we were doing polling at the time, I'm sure you remember this, Sean. In fact, the 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 uh, when we asked the different options that were be- being presented by the Conservatives, the Liberals, and the NDP in terms of dealing with the issue, actually the preferred option was the one that was being proposed by the Conservatives. So I I think that what happens in election campaigns is that uh, the media who writes kind of the flash history or the hot take on on what happened, they kind of go with what they were thinking about, but um, it doesn't necessarily reflect what Canadians were thinking about. And I think Catters, this this uh, the refugee issue in the last campaign is a good example of this, uh, or in the uh, 2015 campaign, uh, the Ralph Goodale and the RCMP. Uh, is a good example for 2008. Uh, if the mythology now is that decided the campaign, that's baloney. We know that didn't happen. And the reason that we know that is because we were in field and we saw the numbers very much switch as a result of law and order issues in the 905 and in Ontario, which is where the, uh, which is where the, uh, the election campaign was decided. So um, I'm, I'm not about hot takes on these kinds of things. Uh, I think that we have to look at the data mm-hmm. and see what's really moving people. Um, we'll see in our own polling uh, whether or not foreign affairs and Afghanistan rises up to the level of being a, a real election issue. But at this stage of the game, uh, there's there's no indication that it will. Is the it- problem that the Liberals have with this, though, Mike and Sean, is that they're, every question that starts every press conference is going to be about this, which means that they can't get the rest of their Build Back Better message out. So they're going to spend a lot of time talking about this and not about their the, the, their preferred message. And potentially a problem for all the candidates um, in that the first portion of every newscast may be dominated by Afghanistan and just not leave as much coverage and time for covering sort of the NDP, the Conservatives, and how they're trying to push the uh, the election. Well, the difference, though, between the opposition in, in the government is uh, the question to the opposition will be, what would you do? The question to the government is, what are you doing? And one carries a much heavier weight than the other. Mm-hmm. So unless Aaron O'Toole or Jagmeet Singh says something completely inappropriate, 
Um, it's not going to be something that grinds them, I would think, too much. But the fact that the government really can't control this and can't make it go away, uh, and the question is, what are you doing? That's where it becomes problematic for the government. I'm, uh, I'm glad you brought up uh, Jagmeet Singh and Aaron O'Toole, Daryl. Uh, I'd like to talk about them a little bit. Uh, and maybe we'll first start with, uh, with Aaron O'Toole, given that he and the Conservatives are in second place. But one of the things our polling has revealed that I think is quite interesting is that uh, among the 55-plus crowd, let's call them boomers as a short form, the Conservatives do not have an advantage. In fact, they're essentially tied with the Liberals. And now this is a is a group that uh, traditionally votes Conservative, and that's really important for them because they also show up and vote. So um, my question is, why do you think Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives are struggling to break through with that um, uh, with that core audience for them? Why aren't they resonating? Well, it's it's interesting that we saw in the last two elections that this was this was also a problem, by the way, for Andrew Scheer, um, that the Liberals did better there than um, than the uh, uh, than uh, they they do historically. I think that you know the Liberals when they came into power back in 2015 really did target seniors. I mean, this time around, for example, uh, you know every senior I think it's above the age of 75 had you know $500 show up in their checking account. My father being one of them. Um, uh, the day after the election. So it's pretty clear the Liberals are doing what they need to in order to connect with um, uh, with the senior population. Uh, the uh, and, and that will be the challenge of um, uh, for Aaron O'Toole to try and find a way back there. He hasn't got the mechanisms of, uh, of being able to provide people with cash money today that the Liberals do. But um, traditionally, um, uh, the, the more conservative values are, the, are better aligned with uh, with boomer values, particularly on things like small government, uh, you know, the whole social justice agenda that's been incredibly important for Justin Trudeau and also is for Jagmeet Singh. Uh, we've seen in our own polling isn't as big a sale with uh, with seniors. So, you know, we'll we'll see how this works out over time. But, yeah, right at the moment, uh, there's growth potential for Aaron O'Toole among the senior population that he hasn't realized. And speaking of uh, of Jagmeet Singh, uh, our polling is showing that the NDP is around 20%. Even six months ago, they were down into the low mid-teens. So clearly, uh, some people are turning to the NDP as an alternative to the uh, incumbent liberals or uh, or conservatives. Do you think the NDP can can actively play a, a spoiler role in this election, or, or are they sort of at their maximum potential right now? Well, we know they're no, they're not, they're not maximum potential because they're the party with the greatest flex, I would say, over the space of the last, uh, last four or five election cycles. They've gone up the most and gone down, gone down the most. So there is potential for the right message, in the right circumstances, for Jagmeet Singh to cut through. And uh, you know, if you're a progressive voter and you're disappointed with Justin Trudeau's performance on climate change, or disappointed with uh, how he's dealt with Indigenous issues. And you feel that the election's pretty much already decided that we're going to end up with another liberal government. Well, you could send a message by voting for the NDP. So uh, I think that there's potential there, and and it really is a game of inches, right? So uh, or or millimeters uh, this time around, or centimeters. Um, in that um, uh, the the NDP only has to come up a couple of points before things start to get very interesting in terms of seat counts. Um, so if the NDP finds itself up in the range of 23, 24, so 
four points. By the way, they've already come up four or five points since the last election. If they can add a, another three, four points during the course of this election campaign, targeted in the right places, British Columbia, where in our polling right now, uh, they are, I would say, surprisingly low. So I think there's potential for them there. And if they can add in some support in the 905, um, in uh, outside of Toronto, uh, they can cause some vote splits to happen in some really interesting ways, and some some important things can happen in terms of in terms of seat counts. So, Jagmeet Singh does not ha- have to have a big effect to have a big effect. So his numbers don't have to move a lot before there's a significant effect in terms of how seats fall one way or the other based on the split. So yeah, the NDP's definitely. I'd say um, through the course of this campaign, something to very much uh, clock the the impact that they're going to have on the uh, the outcome of the election. I want to shift uh, away from parties and look at some issues, in two in particular, um, or at least get you to look at, actually. Uh, one, climate change. Uh, traditionally, well, not traditionally, still is a, a, a very high youth priority. Last election, um, climbed to a level where it was um, tied with health care. Since then, it's dropped back to where it had been in the past, uh, you know, fifth, sixth priority for Canadians. Um, does it regain its prominence? And and at the same time, like, while you're thinking about that, um, healthcare, traditionally an issue that's been pushed by older Canadians, worried about the long term or the future, shifted a little bit the ground with the pandemic in terms of how people view where things are going, obviously. Um, but it's always been number one, and it's probably the most important issue that very few people talk about. Politicians who shied away from the media haven't covered it. Um, the Conservatives came out yesterday, 6%, uh, not a 6% bump, but moving it back to 6%, the annual increases, another $60 billion over 10 years. Does health care um, finally get, I would say, more pundit political attention as opposed to just Canadians saying it's a key issue for us? So, so double-barreled, um, does climate change come back and... What's the future of healthcare as a, a potentially as an election issue? I think climate is one of those things, and we've seen this in the polling guys, that uh, uh, has taken on a cyclical life. Uh, it tends to rise up the agenda now when we get bad weather events in the summertime or wildfires. And, and we're in that season right now. So I expect that climate will play a role in the election campaign because it's outside people's doors. Uh, if you're in if you're in Alberta or British Columbia right now, you're looking out at the sky, uh, and you're smelling smoke. You're seeing a red sunset. I mean, there's there's lots of indications that there's a there's a real effect as a result of climate change on what's happening in your day to day life. So I think that in those places it will um, it, it will uh, have resonance. But the question is, what do you do with it? So the the role that climate change change played in the last election campaign was it was a, a sword issue an attack issue for the liberals, mostly against the conservatives, which it was shaping up to, again, in this campaign, uh, with the uh, particularly with uh, the policy convention vote of the conservative party in which they voted against um, accepting that climate change was real and you know, were, were labeled uh, somewhat climate change deniers by that vote. So they've set it up as a sword type issue for the liberal party again. But the problem that they've got is that the biggest issue for the liberals in the short term is how they deal with other progressive parties, not the conservatives. So the conservatives don't look to be the threat that they normally are in an election campaign. So going 
after the conservatives the way the liberals want to on issues like climate change, on issues like abortion, things that we saw in the last election campaign. Issues, you know, for example, they've tried to set up mandatory vaccination as a similar type of sort issue in this campaign. If it doesn't look like the conservatives are going to be your main threat, having all of that ammunition, having all of those arrows, swords, whatever metaphor you want to use, doesn't really do very much for your campaign. The question is, what are their what is their defense when the NDP goes after them and the Green Party goes after them, which is absolutely going to happen through the course of the campaign, and um, particularly during the debates when they talk about, for example, Trans Mountain Pipeline or the fact that they've been in power for six years. What have they done on climate? Now, they've got a really good defense. They can say that they were the first government that put a national price on carbon, and they'll keep coming back to that. But there's so many contradictions in there that there's lots that the NDP and the Green Party can deal with. And as I said before, it's a game of inches. If the NDP and Greens pull the Liberals down from 35 to 33, it's a whole different election. On health care, uh, you know, guys, we've been doing this for a long time together. Uh, it's all, it, it tends to be when there's not an urgent issue, it's the one that percolates up to the top of the, of the scale uh, as being an issue. Uh, the most important issue for Canadians, and Mike, you cor- correctly characterized it as a longer-term plan issue as opposed to an immediate, what are we going to, you know, the triage type on healthcare, you know, what are we going to do immediately to deal with problems in the healthcare system? So it's about longer-term con- concerns. I think pan- the pandemic has opened up some opportunities to talk about healthcare in a different way, probably related to things like long-term care. Although we haven't really heard the parties come out strongly on that, if there's an element of the healthcare issue that somebody could seize and put together a plan and really uh, make a, 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 cent- a central point in the campaign, it would be about long-term care. Because I think that there's a general acknowledgement that if uh, our entire healthcare system failed anybody in this election campaign, it, it, it was seniors, uh, those who are in long-term care. And as you said uh, at the start of this, you know, Aaron O'Toole needs to cut through with uh, seniors. Maybe this is an issue for him. Okay. Yeah, we're probably too far out from Election Day at this point to know what the ballot box question will be. Uh, but is there a, a short list of, of wedge issues or other other topics that you're keeping your eye on that you think might potentially turn into the ballot box issue? At this stage of the game, I'm wondering whether there's going to be an easy in the moment issue that we can point to as the ballot box issue. It might just be this whole, you know, chef salad of things that we see out there. And depending on different groups of voters, different parts of the country, the election never really comes together around a consolidated view of what people are voting on. It gets maybe highly localized, um, uh, um, you know, there's a lot of strategic voting. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of dissatisfaction. There's a lot of trying to stop people rather than support people. It, 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 we could be that kind of mixed type of situation all the way through, which takes us to the ballot question of who do you think can lead us to the next stage of whatever Canada is going to be about? And it, it could be really about leadership. All, by the way, all elections are about leadership. And who do you have confidence in to be able to marshal the resources to lead us to whatever our next version of Canada is going to be uh, that will um, truly be able to help us turn the page on what we've just gone through with the pandemic? Now, Justin Trudeau, quite correctly, has, has, uh, has focused on that. Uh, he said, build back better, hardly original. 
Uh, so we can't give him any uh, any um, grades for having an original phrase to describe it. But the sentiment is is entirely correct. But Aaron O'Toole has done a good job too with the secure the future uh, type message. They're both kind of focused on that. So maybe that's what we start to we we start to look at those two visions for the post pandemic future and which of those you know kind of attitudes best describes what it is that Canadians would think is the best way of doing it. Um, there's a uh, you know, it's very uh, clear that uh, the Trudeau government has gone for a really nostalgic view of of how government should interact with Canadian society. And that's a, it's almost like his father's approach to it. It's a very 1970s, dirigiste, big government approach to doing everything, where Aaron O'Toole has taken more of a mixed bag. Maybe, uh, you know, um, uh, you write a, a, a party platform as long as the one that he wrote when you're still trying to explain things to yourself, I think, in some instances. So I, I I think that, you know, it'll be interesting to see how these two different sets of positions play out. But you can see both of the major parties are trying to position on that. And the NDP at this stage of the game, yeah, they may be starting to try to present that. But I think what they're trying to do is present themselves more as a conscience for the progressive side of the agenda, regardless of who wins. And so the question is, can they present themselves as uh, uh, um, uh, being in a position that if they have more power with more seats, that they'll be able to hold the Liberals to better account? It's it's funny because you're essentially saying that it's a referendum on the next four years as opposed to elections, which in the past have been a referendum on the past four years, right? Or in this case, the past two years. Does that make the management, because if you go back to where we were a year ago, and the management of the pandemic was crucial to parties, right? They were getting really, I would say pounded, really criticized. You know, this is going to hurt you in the campaign. This is going to be a lasting legacy. If we're looking forward, doesn't that make everything that's happened over the last 20 months sort of moot? I think at this stage of the game, Mike, a lot of it is baked in. And um, there's not much that you can say about the management of the pandemic one way or the other. Although the Liberal Party did try, the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau did try on uh, during his election announcement to raise a new issue, which was mandatory vaccination, which is to a certain extent blown up on him in the last couple of days as other things were revealed about what's actually happening uh, within the government relative to mandatory vaccination. But um, I think it's probably baked in. And I think I said to you, uh, um, we we talked about this informally, obviously not on podcasts, many times, uh, Sean, myself and you, um, about uh, the fact that I don't know that when people say they're satisfied with the government that they're actually saying they're satisfied. I think what they're really saying is, I hope you're doing a good job. Mm-hmm. I hope I hope that this I, I have to support you because I you know we need somebody to be able to be managing this kind of thing. It's not like a joyful, wow, you're great. It's more of a yeah. I hope I hope you're on top of this. I hope you're doing a good job. So that doesn't find its way into the election campaign in a truly uh, in, in a truly inspiring way, I would say. Um, now, where it could play a role is that people have gone through an awful lot of change over the space of the last 17 or 18 months, and stability may be the thing that they're really looking for. So they don't want to have elections. They didn't want to have this election. They may not be interested in change. And, and frankly, our time for change numbers uh, show that there are fewer people who want the liberal government out than are voting for the liberal government now. Um, So maybe 
um, there's an element of stability that relates back to that management record that uh, that um, a people on election day will just say, you know, I'm not ready for kicking these guys out at this particular point in time. And maybe I don't love them, but, you know, the devil I love, you know, the devil I know better than the devil I don't. Uh, that, that may play a little bit of a role, but uh, I don't get the sense that there's any sort of, you guys have done a great job. Let's, let's high five our way to the, to the ballot box. It's, I don't get that sense. Our, motiv- our motivation or Canadians motivation may be who can just keep politicians away from me for the next four years. <laughs> Yeah, it could it could be a little bit of that, but but we tend to see that in all you know in, in all election campaigns. The difference that we've got this time uh, uh, is that the prime minister really didn't need to call this election. It was a political choice. If you think that this is a moment that isn't for politics, you see politics as being a cynical kind of thing. It kind of colors everything else that follows it. So if you do one thing that's cynical. How do you treat everything else that they announce? Is it sincere or is it cynical? Are you motivated? Are, are you doing this because it's the right thing? Or are you just trying to get my vote? You know, what's going on? So I think that the announcement, the way that it was all handled, and the fact that we're having this election right now, puts the liberals a little bit behind the eight ball. And the reason I, I say that is because of the fact that we haven't seen that t- type of traditional bump that the the, the the party in power gets as we start into an election campaign. It's it's pretty well frozen in time as it was, you know, a couple of months ago, or even last month when we when we did the election. So, um, I um or did our did our our, our polling at the time. So I'm I'm wondering if there's a little bit of a, a sour taste right now that's going to be uh, accompany everything that the Liberals announce. And then you've got Aaron O'Toole on the other side, who is either going to be a breath of fresh air, or we're going to get unfortunate surprises that are going to just like we saw with Kim Campbell, like we saw with Andrew Scheer, like we've seen with any, any politician that's trying to introduce themselves through an election campaign that could blow up on them. The, the opportunity it's, it's really, it's hair trigger. It could go either way for him, but um, you know, if he has a fairly good run and he impresses people and he's not threatening the way that uh, the liberals need him to be. um, And uh, people think that he'd be a really safe pair of hands. Who knows? Is Jason Kenney a problem for Aaron O'Toole? No. And the reason is because, uh, as you see based on our polling that was released today, the Liberal Conservatives are, what, 57 in Alberta. Jason Kenney only matters in Alberta. If it was Doug Ford like it was in the last election campaign, okay, you've got me. You know, in the 905, I'm listening. But And, and we saw that worked really well for the Liberals in the last election campaign. I would argue it's why they won. Uh, Jason Kenney doesn't have the same effect uh, that Doug Ford does. So uh, I think they'll try it, but, you know, every general always tries to refight the last war. Uh, but um, <laughs> the uh, I, I don't think that it'll have the same effect. And, the same, and you, can, you can just see the liberals pining to fight that kind of campaign. It's the same campaign they've been fighting for, you know, 30, 40 years in which it's demonized the conservatives to marginalize the NDP. That's what they want to do. That's the campaign they're built to fight. Justin Trudeau was selected as the party leader because he best represented that. So how does he fight that type of campaign when he's now been in power for six years? He's got a record to defend. And the guy who is supposed to be the scary person that we're trying to prevent from coming in doesn't look like he's, he's got any possibility of winning. Even conservative voters don't think he can win. I have a question for you for non-pollsters. 
if you're average Canadian and you're not looking at numbers. This is for your mom, right, Mike? It's for my mom for over the next, over the next little while. What are you looking at? Right. I mean, is it protests at events? Is it shifts in the the coverage? Someone getting, does it become a policy election? Like we've never had one. Uh, But, but, but are there things that outside of the numbers that you think people should look at and say, you know what, something's happening here. Um, I, I'm going to disappoint you, Mike. Uh, I'm going to say I, I rarely look at anything outside of the numbers. You're just disappointing I, I, my mom. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Miss College. Uh, I I um I rarely look outside of it because the uh, the media has become such a small feedback loop these days that things that happen in you know Twitter, for example, or or you know are on the nightly news. Unless they're sustained for a period of time and they make sense to you know individual people, they're just the same people talking to each other. It's it's just a giant echo chamber that doesn't have very much of an effect. And you know if you go and you take a look at the the, the viewership numbers of all the major networks during the course of the election campaign, they're nothing like they used to be. So um, I don't necessarily think that that matters as much. I, I think what does matter is you start to see things picking up in the polling uh, from the good pollsters that should be consistent where you start to say, see things start to move and you, and you can, that, at that point, then you can sort of figure out what it is that's causing it. But until it starts to move, it's pretty hard to find out what could have an effect. I mean, there are some instances when it, it, it appears in the news, you just know it's going to have an effect. SNC-Lavalin. You know it's going to have an effect. Um, blackface. You know it's going to have an effect. Um, uh, not getting rid of your Canadian or your American citizenship before trying to become the prime minister of this country. You just know that's too. That material is too good um, so, to to not have an effect on the campaign. So basically, unless it's an event that shows up on Twitter, CBC, and subreddits, it's probably not going to. It's the media is too diffuse, and we should just stick to our numbers. Yeah, uh, I think that the only place that we could see big surprises in this campaign or where I'm looking for big surprises, either positive or negative, is on the conservative side, because they're, um, uh, you know, the undecideds, I don't know, uh, factor is so high there. Um, And, you know, his negatives outweigh his positives, but most of his negatives are among the political junkies, which tend to be progressives anyway, as we as we know. Uh, So they're they're bound not to like him. But um, that huge group of undecided, as is, is that blank gets, blanks start to get filled in about who Aaron O'Toole is, it could either go one way or the other. And we saw this with Kim Campbell back in 1993. And, and Aaron O'Toole in many ways is like Kim Campbell. So, Daryl, uh, as we go through the campaign, the big question is whether or not the liberals, I think, have a shot at the majority. Um, so help us understand where on the map we need to watch to understand whether or not the Liberals have a shot of the majority? So assuming that there isn't a really big move in the numbers, that it's going to be the incremental type campaign that we've been discussing, so little you know, little moves, uh, as I said before, 338 individual campaigns. Um, so it's going to be a, a campaign of significant individual small movements. The things that I'm going to be looking at most closely are how the Bloc is doing in the province of Quebec, just because there's 77 seats in the province of Quebec. And if the Liberals are going to pick up a a big swath of seats all at once, they're going to do it there. And I'm going to be looking at British Columbia, where our polling right now has the Liberal Party leading. 
Uh, it's one of the significant moves that we've seen since the last election campaign. Uh, and if they hold on to that lead, that could very well be where they form the majority. So I'm looking at those two places more than any others. Um, uh, obviously, if there's big movement in the 905 outside of Toronto, if the NDP moves up, which splits votes uh, from the Liberal Party and helps the Conservative Party or the Conservative Party starts to move in the 905, then there's going to be seismic changes in terms of uh, in terms of how votes are going to uh, seats are going to move. Uh, then I'm going to pay attention to that. But you know, and, and you can point out some other small ones like what's going to happen in Atlantic Canada to the Conservative seats. You know, there's a green seat. You know, somebody crossed the floor in in New Brunswick, uh, in Edmonton, whether or not. Uh, uh, the NDP or the Liberals are going to be able to pick up any seats this time around. Um, you know, downtown, uh, you know, downtown Regina or Saskatoon. What's going to happen there? Winnipeg. But all of those are onesies and twosies. They're not tens and fifteens. So BC and Quebec are the two places we're going to be watching most closely. Well, that sets us up well, given we're going to try to get Seb Delaire and Kyle Braid into conversations about Quebec and BC later on. Well, perfect, because they're the guys who are going to be able to tell all of our listeners. Excellent. Uh, well, probably the most important election information. That that'll be great. Um, well, Sean, unless you have anything else, um, uh, Daryl, thank you very much. Hopefully, we can get you back um, towards the end of the campaign to have another quick chat. But uh, thanks very much, and uh, have a great day. Well, thanks. I'm absolutely thrilled to be on my favorite podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Educated Conjecture. Follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts for another episode of public opinion and informed insights. If you have a topic you'd like to see covered on an upcoming episode, please send us an email at publicaffairs at ipsos.com. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-A-F-F-A-I-R-S at ipsos, I-P-S-O-S dot com.